Well, a very warm welcome to you. This is a reason for hope when we are live with you for the next hour to receive your questions on God's Word, the Bible. That's right. This is a live broadcast, and we receive your questions live as we go along, as they come into us through our various uh, social media uh, platforms, and we uh, endeavor to find the answers in uh, the Bible. So if you have any questions, maybe uh, passages of Scripture or verse that has confuddled you. Um, is that a word? <laughs> We're using it. Confuddled. I've used it before. <laughs> Confuddled. It's an English word. I always say that as an excuse. Probably not. If you're English, don't chime in. Um, so do please send us those questions here. Maybe you're going through something in your life. Uh, maybe uh, there's a, a worldview or world event, something you'd like a biblical perspective. It's just me and Peter here today. Peter <clears throat> Martin. It's lonely. It is lonely. <laughs> so lonely. How are you doing? You doing good? Yeah, I'm doing good. Yeah. Unlike most of our staff. Unlike, that's right. <laughs> yeah, the sickness has been going uh, around. Uh, do pray for, for Pastor Scott and for Pastor Sean, who are under the weather. It's kind of passed around through all of us. Uh, I'm sure you've been dealing with some of that as well. Hope you are well and certainly glad that you're, you're joining us uh, today. So, uh, well, there are several ways that you can uh, join us and get your questions uh, to us. A Reason for Hope is a ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, so keep that in mind. As you're trying to find us, we have a website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, if you follow the Watch Live tab. I'm working on a fancy schmancy uh, thing like Adrian had. I haven't, didn't, didn't finish oh, he it. He didn't teach you how to do that? He did, but he sent it to me in PowerPoint, and I'm kind of a Mac guy. So yeah. I'm remaking it in a, in a keynote and uh, coming to you maybe after Christmas. So coming to you. <laughs> it's going to be better than Adrian's. Somehow I'm going to find a way to make it even more fancy and oh, sparkles or something like that. But um Anyway, for now, just my face and my voice. So CalvaryChristianFellowship.com, follow the Watch Live tab, and that will take you straight to our live page. You'll see when we're offline, you'll see our schedule of shows coming up and a countdown to the next show. And if we're live like we are now, you'll find us uh, right there. And there's a chat function that you can send your questions in. I will be monitoring all those uh, platforms as we go along. Facebook, uh, Calvary Christian Fellowship, again, search for us there. We're live there as well. On YouTube, the channel is called A Reason for Hope. So A Reason for Hope. That's on YouTube, and of course, as you know, you can comment there. Make sure you like and subscribe and click the bell um, so you're notified when we're live. Um, we'd love to just reach a, a wider audience. We can literally go all around the world through this method, so do share and like and all that good uh, stuff. Our email address, should you want to email us, is questionsforhope, questionsforhope spelled out, at gmail.com, and you can also follow our senior pastor here, Scott Richards, uh, on Twitter at scottr4h, that's Scott, letter R, number four, letter H, where he posts highlights from the show and kind of updates on world events and prophecy things and funny things and all that, kind of all the things. All the things. All the things. Um, so with all that being said, once again, get your questions in early. Sometimes we do run out of time, um, so send your questions in. There's no dumb question if it's an honest question of the heart, and I'm sure that if you have a question on the Bible, there's someone else watching that probably has the same question and maybe not brave enough to ask it, so you'll be ministering to those people joining us as well. So do send your questions in. Well, before we go any further, would you like to pray yeah. for us? That would be great. Let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, Father, we love you so much. We're grateful for you and all that you do for us. Uh, we ask that we would be able to give you this time, that we would be able to dedicate it to the study of your word and your truth. Uh, allow the questions coming in to be from the heart. And, allow, and I do pray that you would give uh, myself and Dave the wisdom to be able to answer them in such a way that honors your word. We're grateful for you, God, and in your name. Amen. 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 Well, as we wait for these uh, questions to come on in here, uh, we had a question from 
my daughter, she wrote a couple of questions on a card. Nice. That we want to get to. Uh, her question is, there's two questions, but it's kind of a two-part, I guess. Her question is, um, in our day-to-day life, what is the importance of prayer? And the second question is, do we have to be, uh, uh, do we have to pray to be a Christian? So if prayer is not part of our life, are we still a Christian? So what's the importance of prayer, the place of prayer? And if we don't have, if we don't pray, can we still be a Christian or is that a, a deal breaker? Yeah, no, very good question. Um, we'll probably do this uh, on one of the Thursdays. On Thursdays, we're starting to go through good Christian books, uh, books that I've personally, me and Sean have personally found to be um, impactful towards us. Uh, one of the most impactful books I read on the topic of prayer was a book by Timothy Keller called Prayer, <laughs> Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God. So you, you could just type in like Timothy Keller, and then uh, Prayer is the, is the main title, and the mm-hmm. subtext is uh, Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God. Really, really well thought out. Really, uh, I, I thought it was a really good read. I think that people who are maybe more relational and emotively minded, they might find it difficult to read. It is more of like an intellectual scholarly book where he's going through the church's perspective on prayer, how they've approached it and how they've looked at it, the various and intricate passages that speak on this topic, things like that. But uh, one of the most encouraging things that he points out in the beginning of his book, because I read this when I was like 24, 25, and uh, he points out that one of the passages where we get what we call the Lord's Prayer, one of them is from the Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus is giving a Sermon on the Mount, and then he teaches what we refer to as the Lord's Prayer. But another time where Jesus gives the Lord's Prayer is in Luke chapter 11. So I'm going to read the passage and explain why this is so encouraging. Hmm. So Luke 11 begins like this. Now it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place when he ceased that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Now, the reason why that's so encouraging is because Jesus' disciples, you got to remember, they're not atheists. Mm. They're not people who converted to faith in Messiah from atheism or secularism. These are Jewish believers, people who have been raised in Judaism with the knowledge of the true and living God from birth all the way into their adulthood. These are adult believers in God who are like, can you teach us how to pray? (laughs) So that was very encouraging to me as a 24-year-old thinking the same thing. How do I pray? What's that all about? So if that's your question today and you're thinking about it and you're a little older, be encouraged. Even Jesus' disciples were like, maybe we don't got this prayer thing handled. Because when you're in a religious context and people just pray, that's just the the mode that they function in. You pray before eating, you pray Mm -hmm. before you get while you're in church and things like that it becomes white noise and you don't really understand why you're doing it. Mm. And so when Jesus's disciples saw him praying, they were convicted by it. When they saw, when they witnessed his prayer life, they were like, I don't talk to God that way. Mm. There's something unique about the way that Jesus is addressing God that I want to learn from, I want to access. Jesus, how do I pray? So if that's your question right. today, let's just keep reading and see how Jesus answers yeah. the question. So, uh, He said to them, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, the reason why I was wording it in the sense of what I was calling it, what we call the Lord's prayer is because that's a bad name for it. It's not the Lord's Prayer concerning the fact that Jesus never prayed this way, because as you could tell through the prayer, 
Jesus gives you an allowance for confession of sin. Mm. And since Jesus never sinned, obviously this is not a prayer that he ever personally made to his father. We also don't believe that it's some sort of a magic spell, Mm. right? That if you just say this exactly as Jesus worded it, then you're going to have access to God. Uh, The reason why we don't believe that way is for a couple of reasons. The main one is that we never see anyone in the New Testament pray this way. So we do have recorded prayers in the New Testament. We have a lot of them in the book of Acts. We have uh, pretty much every letter that the Apostle Paul writes contains a personal prayer Mm. for the church that he's communicating with, as well as some of the other letters that you have in the rest of the New Testament. Nobody ever prays this prayer. Mm. Nobody. Mm. So obviously (laughs) the apostles are not thinking this is how, when Jesus says this is how you pray, they're thinking verbatim. I pray that exact thing and that's how I communicate with God. Mm. They are seeing this is some sort of a model or format that teaches me the modes of prayer. Yeah. So broad term, prayer simply means communication with God, that you're talking to God. Now, when Jesus gives us this mode of prayer, he is helping us understand how should I approach God? Mm. How ought I to approach God? So the beginning of the prayer is our Father. To important points. I could give an entire sermon on this, so I'll try to condense this as much as I can for the purpose of the podcast. <laughs> We've got an hour. That's, uh, <laughs> no one else to interrupt, just me and you. <laughs> so our Father, the things that we can pull from it is, number one, prayer is meant to be collective. When we approach God, we're approaching God through the access that Jesus purchased for us on the cross. That means that all of the church has access to this level of prayer mm-hmm. because Jesus could have said, pray like this, my Father, who art in heaven. But he says, are. There is an understanding in that beginning, our Father, that I'm not just communicating with God in a personal level that only I have this access because I'm special. Mm -hmm. It's I have access to God because of something that Jesus has done for me. Mm -hmm. Now, the second word is Father. What this means, and, and many theologians have pointed this out, the word that Jesus uses here is Abba. Mm-hmm. So it's not like in it's formalized in our text. So when I read Luke or I read Matthew where this prayer is recorded, it's always recorded as father. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's a great translation mm-hmm. because the word Abba is a more personal term, right? So if you call your dad father, if that's how you normally address your dad, then that's a good translation <laughs> for yes. you. But if you're like 99% of the world, you don't call your dad father. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a bad translation for you. Right. This is a very personal term. This is, uh, some pastors have pushed it and said that Abba is closer actually to our word daddy. Mm. I would push it even further and say Abba is actually more like our word dada. Mm. Because you could even see it. Abba, dada, yeah. they're very similar. When does a child refer to their father as dada as opposed to daddy? When they're Infants. Young, yeah. Right? Really, really young. They can't even pronounce the Y. They can only do the the very simple conjugation of just an A, right? Mm. To data. That was what my daughter called me when she could first talk. Yeah. Dada mama. That's all she could say. Right. What Jesus is is getting at by using this very, very personal term is he's suggesting that when we approach God, mm. when we approach God, we're approaching him on that level of personal uh personality. Yeah. That we have a very intimate relationship with him. Right. So is it is it the the familiarity or is it the childlikeness or is it like both of those? It seems to be both. So in Romans 8, Paul uses it in both ways. Mm. So he takes both implications from it. Yeah. Um, so on one hand, 
he does talk about the familiarity that we are not adopted. He, he words it this way. We have not been adopted again to a spirit of bondage, mm. but we are instead adopted into a spirit of familiarity by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Mm. Right. So Paul is making a, a familiar term saying that the reason why we're calling God Abba, the reason why we're using the word dad is because he is a relational God mm. that we know him personally. Yeah. He, while he is God of the entire universe, and we do fear him, we're going to get to that part of the prayer in a second, we do fear the Lord, we do tremble before him, we understand his awesome power. However, we also understand that he has condescended to have a personal relationship with us, that it's very, it's not just personal, but it's parental. He cares mm. about us in the way that a, a human father cares about you, mm. right? That's how personal it is. But then later on, he says, for we do not know how to pray. <laughs> We don't know how to pray for what we ought. So there's this idea, and he talks about the Holy Spirit making groanings for us with that, that yeah. cannot be uttered. He's, he's calling out to the idea that when a kid, again, when they use the term Abba, when they use the term Dada, mm. they don't really have much speech to them. Yeah. They just know how to cry out for their dad. Right. So Paul does make that in indication from, I mean, he pulls an indication from this terminology mm. of suggesting that not only do we have a familiarity with Jesus, but we, I mean, with God the Father, but we also have the capacity to approach him in an infant-like state, mm. a state of dependency and need, understanding that he knows what we need better than we do. Right. And he's already aware of it and he already loves us and cares about it. So just beginning... However you want to start your prayers, do it in such a way where you're reminding yourself of this, mm. your position before God, your acknowledgement of the familiarity, and your acknowledgement of, hey, what I'm about to pray for, what I'm about to say, it's it's not going to be totally perfect. Right? Right. It's going to be a little messy. I'm probably going to ask for things that are dumb. I'm probably going to bring up things that aren't relevant, mm. but God is waiting and he's excited to hear from me. Yeah. He's my dad, yeah. right? He cares. Uh, the next part is who art in heaven, our father who art in heaven. The idea there is that, again, I am addressing God in the sense that he is like a father to me, but I'm also remembering that he's in heaven, yeah. right? He is above me. He is more powerful than me. He is more majestic than me. Yep. He is amazing. I am not approaching some cosmic genie. Yep. I am not about telling God how to run his business. Yep. And that's why the next sentence says, Hallowed be your name. Right. Hallowed is the idea of being sanctified or precious or set apart. Make your name holy. Yeah. You're saying, God, you are holy. You're above me. You're amazing. You're powerful. You're worthy. Help me to become more aware of that. Yeah. Right. Help me not to approach you and, again, tell you what your business is or criticize you or think that you're off your rocker or think that I need to tell you what the proper thing to do in my life is. Right. I am approaching you as one who is in heaven, yeah. someone who is literally creating who literally created the known universe and maintains it by his word yeah. right i need to remember that in my prayers yeah so there's a balance there mm -hmm. from he's your daddy right to art in heaven yeah hallowed be your name so yeah. you're certainly not approaching him like a teenager like oh dad you're so stupid give me the key <laughs> or whatever there's a balance there i see absolutely yeah and so you're trying to balance those inside of your brain and you see jesus trying to bring that balance together in this prayer format yeah. Uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's recognizing this is also a recognition of God being on the throne. Yep. So no matter what's going on in my life, it feels chaotic. If it feels like everything's in turmoil, I remember I'm trying to remind myself God is in control. Yeah. 
And ultimately, again, I am not approaching him to get my will done. That's not the purpose of prayer. The purpose of prayer is for me to align myself to God's will. Mm. God, I want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want you to be God of my life. I want you to be God of my circumstances. I want your will for my life. I don't want mine, yeah. right? Because I understand I might be wrong. It's my right. Father who's in heaven. Um, the next part is uh, give us to stay our daily bread. This flows from it. This is the part of prayer that we uh, that we commonly refer to as as like a an asking part. Most people make this the totality of their prayer life, though. Right. That they're going before God and they're asking Him for things. Yep. Jesus only makes it one part of His prayer. So when He gives us a format, He's like, when you ask God for things, it's not that we don't ask God for things, but that's only one aspect of your prayer life. Right. If your prayer life is only asking God for things, you are missing out. Yep. You are missing out on prayer. You are only getting one tiny little infantile process that is present within the prayer life a Christian can have. Mm. And it's actually the, it's in my opinion, the least valuable aspect of prayer. Mm. Because if you're coming before God and all you're doing is asking him for things and you're not seeking to align yourself to his way of thinking mm. and you're not seeking to understand him and saying like, I want to take some time out of my day just to remember and meditate on God and who he is in my life and who he is in the universe, if that's not what you're doing within your prayer life, then all you're doing is asking God for stuff, and right. you'll be happy when he says yes, and you'll be disappointed when he says no. Right. Um, that's not a very relevant, and it's not a very effective line of communication you can have with God. Mm. So even the, the statement, give us to stay our daily bread, is a recognition of, I don't know what I need. Mm. When you're saying, give us to stay our daily bread, you're saying, God, give me what I need. Yeah. Give me what I need. It doesn't mean I can't tell God what I want. Jesus does this. Mm -hmm. uh, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, mm -hmm. not as I will, but as your will. Mm -hmm. So he's saying, hey, I, I kind of don't want to go to the cross, <laughs> but I understand that your will sub supersedes mine. Yeah. I want to submit to you. Uh, that's the idea. Uh, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Mm -hmm. Give us to stay our daily bread. Let me have what I need, and only you know what that is. Help yeah. me to be humble enough to realize that. So I'll bring my desires before God in this part of prayer. I'll tell him this is what I want, but ultimately not as I will, but as you will. Mm. Uh, next part, uh, forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. So that's a two-part of prayer. Every time you pray, and I'm bad at this, but it's something I'm, I'm always trying to work on, I should be confessing personal sin. Mm. I should be acknowledging God. You know, these are the areas in my life that I'm working on right now, Lord, mm. right? Prayer is a time of meditation, right? Which is very different. When I use the word meditate, I'm not using it in an Eastern sense, yeah. where meditation is about emptying yourself of all thought and focusing on like a mantra or something like that. I'm using it in a Hebrew sense, mm. where meditation is about rolling something over in your mind, thinking it over, right? Filling yourself with thought. Mm. So what is happening here is you're thinking in your in your heart, what are the areas of my life that I feel like God wants me to work on? Does God want me to work on my communication? Does God want me to work on my honesty? Does God want me to work on my integrity, my willpower? Does he want me to work on my lust? Does He? What are the areas that I really feel like the Holy Spirit is emphasizing in my life right now? Yeah. God, can you forgive me of my failings in these areas? And can you lift me up that I might be able to fulfill these things in a way that honors you? Mm. God, I want to be someone who is humble, I want to be someone who's easy in my repentance. I want to be someone who's learning and growing in my relationship. Help me do that. And if you can't think of anything to confess, say that. 
Come um, on, I mean, we'll tell yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but say that, be like, God, I, I can't really think of anything that's going on in my life right now that I'm wrong about. Uh, can you show me something? Yeah. Can you show me areas where I'm blind to my faults, that, that, I, that I have secret sins, and I'm not even aware of them? Can you show me these things? Can, can I be attentive to your spirit to point these things out, and I could be bending to that will? Uh, as we forgive those who trespass against us, who are the people in my life that I'm having relational difficulties with right now? Who do I need to forgive right now? Who do I need to work on my relationship with? And what are the obstacles to that relationship working? Mm. The forgive uh, forgive me my trespasses is what's my part in this relationship deterioration? But forgive the person who's trespassing against me is what's their part? What do I need to forgive them for mm. uh, before you, Lord? And forgiveness, once again, it's not overlooking a sin, but it's giving God his rightful authority to judge sin in someone else's life. Yep. Saying, Lord, I am not God. You are God. You do with this person as you see fit. You see right. all things. You see wickedness more clearly than I do. Deal with this person so that I could be freed of my bitterness and my resentment, mm -hmm. right? That's that idea. The, the next one is um, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Um, this is, once again, it harkens back to what I just said, but it is looking at your life and saying, what are the things that are going on in my life right now in which I might be tempted? What are the areas where I'm weak, fragile, frail? In, uh, in relative danger of falling into something? Do I see a lot of lust in my life? Once again, do I see a relationship that's on the brink? Do I see a tendency to be greedy or selfish? Do I see a tendency to be dishonest? Mm -hmm. Right. Those are the things that I'm thinking about. What are the areas of temptation that are present within my life? Uh, right now, for me, it's frustration, right? I have a, I have a little baby boy and mm -hmm. I love him, but he's keeping me up all night. And it's very easy for me to become frustrated at him it's very easy for me to be frustrated at others mm. because I, I'm lacking sleep right now mm. and to, to treat people unfairly and to justify it because of my lack of rest, mm -hmm. right? <clears throat> I also am more vulnerable to a lot of my lusts and a lot of the issues that exist in my sexual life, right? So I'm, I'm aware of that and I'm cognizant of it and I'm understanding like I need to be on guard because I'm tired a lot, yeah. right? And I'm, I'm, I also just have these frailties naturally within my life. So when I'm praying, I ought to be thinking about these things. Now, the next part of your question was, can I be a Christian and not pray? I believe mm. that's how she worded it, yeah. right? Uh, the easy answer to put it is absolutely, right? What makes us a Christian is our faith in God. We mm. believe what the Bible says about God. We believe that God exists, that he created the universe, that he has a perfect order, that we have violated that perfect order in our sin, mm. and that God's solution to that was to provide us a sacrifice through his son, who was a real historical figure, who came to the earth and died for your sins, right? That faith is what makes you a Christian. Right. There are salvation issues, and that's what it means to be a Christian, but then there's what we call sanctification er mm. uh, issues, which is what does it mean to live the Christian life, which are two different statements. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be a Christian means what does it mean, what does it take to become saved? What does it mean to live the Christian life means what does it mean to be more like Christ and to be more in line with him and his nature? Mm. Prayer doesn't get you saved. I believe that everybody who is saved at one point cried out to God, right? I don't think you can, right? Right. You have to make some sort of a, a crying out to God in yeah. order to be saved. If you confess. Right, you got to confess probably, with your mouth yeah. that Jesus is the Lord. You got to come before him and say, God, I, I blew it. I sinned. I yeah. messed up. I need your grace in my life. So I, everyone made an initial prayer to get, to get saved, but your continued communication with God, that's something that you need to cultivate. You need mm -hmm. to develop it. 
So it's kind of like marriage. It's like, does talking to your spouse get you married? The answer is, well, no. I mean, technically, maybe you got married on a whim in Vegas. I don't know. There's there's a specific process that gets you married, though. Right. What maintains a healthy relationship is good communication. Yep. But that's not what gets you into the relationship. It's what maintains it, provides for it, cultivates right. it, grows it, right? Yep. So to get into a relationship with God is one thing. To maintain that relationship and to develop it is a totally different thing. Yeah. And so you can be a Christian without praying, but you can't be a good Christian without praying. Right. I'll put it that way. <laughs> you're, you're not going to develop very much in your Christian life without cultivating prayer. Yeah. Now, in our digital age, I think prayer is very difficult. A lot of people today don't know how to be in silence. Right, which right. is what prayer is. Do you know how to just sit in total silence and to organize your thoughts in a way that you're communicating with God? That's yep. very tough. Yep. It's a very difficult thing to do, mm. especially in our modern day. Mm. So my encouragement to people is start slow. Mm. Just give it five minutes a day. Five minutes a day, just sit and say, Lord, I want to give you this time. And just allow your mind five to just, minutes. Just five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and just and try to pray through this prayer. Use it as a format. Right. Yeah, God, you know, help me to focus on the fact that you're 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 my father in heaven. Mm. Help me to understand what that means. Right. Try to go through this prayer as best you can. Go through a psalm. Try to exercise your will to be focused in a moment of prayer with God. Mm. And then over time you could start expanding that time period of how long you could start praying to God. But just start with five minutes. Just try to do that once a day. And if you're not getting anything out of it, if you start praying and your mind's wandering every direction, just say that. Right. Say, Lord, I'm trying to focus on you right now, but my mind is going a million different directions. Mm. I am sorry. I'm not able to connect with you right now. I'm going to try again tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> just go about your day. That's okay. But you're just trying to cultivate that patience and that lean, and that leaning upon the Lord. Yeah. right? And that's really cool. The more you cultivate it, I mean, prayer, a healthy prayer life is a sign of a healthy Christian. Yeah. right? This is probably the most important practice a Christian can cultivate. I would argue even more than getting into scripture, even more mm. than reading the Bible. Mm. Uh, they're equal, I think it's kind of like the question of which wing of the airplane would you like to have intact at 30,000 feet? Yeah. Uh, obviously, they're both integral to your Christian life. But if I had to give preference to one, I would say prayer is the more important. Mm. Wow. Very good. Yeah, I, I found that I like to hike. Mm. And I found that hiking or even running or some of those things are a great time of prayer because for that reason you said, there's so many distractions, you know, cell phone, you're connected with people around the world and just so many things and life is busy. And I think our brains have become this very yeah. thing these days, you know. Yeah. Um, but when I go on a hike and the hike, the main hike I like to do is very intense. It's straight up, it's climbing, you know, yeah. and that's a little, little bit of suffering, you know, really helps me to just, okay, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm breathing, I'm, all I can do is pray. You know, I'm, I can't really be on my phone because I've got to watch my footing and stuff. It's really just a great time to talk to God. And I find it's very conversational and very yeah. talking through and thinking through things in my life and reprocessing things that are going on and just a great time with the Lord. You know? mm. So that's, I guess, like you say, if you even find it hard to sit still and pray, <laughs> yeah. get go for a walk, you know, like it's literally advice, leave yeah. away, leave, yeah. leave behind the distractions, leave, your leave the phone, the TV, leave, the, leave the kids, the, yeah. <laughs> the <laughs> Your <dog>. problems. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Another thing that I would encourage people to do is read through the Psalms. Mm. Pick a Psalm and read a Psalm every day. That's, that is, the, the, the Psalm book is the hymn book of the ancient Israelites. That's mm. what it is. It's, it's their, it was their worship music. But it's also prayer music. That's what it is, mm. right? We have the prayer life of King David and some of the other faithful musicians yep. that existed in Israel. 
to read through it and see how these people pray. Right. And recognize that a lot of their prayers are a little bit different than what we would expect and what we hear in Christendom. Yeah. They're very raw. They're very real. Yeah. Uh, they're very honest. Right. Yeah. Read Psalm 42 and you'll see what I mean. Read Psalm 88. Read Psalm 56. Mm. Right. These are these are very, very passionate and very emotive prayers that are beautiful in their honesty. Yeah. So absolutely. Yeah, very good. I love it when you say the word Christendom. It makes you feel like I'm in the Lord of the Rings movie or something. Christendom. Welcome to Christendom. <laughs> I like that word. Yeah, that's a good word. I like it. Sounds very special. Cool. Well, um, Cariad, my daughter, I hope that helps you out. I'll make sure that you get to see that. You're on a plane right now on a trip over, for over Christmas. But uh, great question. And thanks, Peter. Great, great, uh, um, very helpful answers to that. Uh, we had a question uh, from Kathy here through our email. Questions for hope at gmail.com which I'll share with you, Peter, and then I'll put the camera on you and I'll do some housekeeping around here, <laughs> catching up on questions. Um, uh, Kathy says she listens on the way home from work. That's great. Listen on the radio. We're glad that you do. Uh, she basically, the question is, um, it's based around, I guess, mainly, I think there's other stories as well in the Bible, other accounts, but um, we're with Job and how Satan went before God mm. and sort of got permission to, to have at it. Mm. The question is, um, if God is holy and obviously Satan is, is the embodiment of sin and, and unholiness, how could Satan be in the presence of God or in heaven? And was he indeed in heaven? And what's the on the ongoing relationship with that? Is there communication between Satan and God? And how can there be if they mm. are so far divided as far as holiness? So that's really um, the essence of the question there from Kathy today. Yeah, no, very, very, very good question. Yeah, a common question, common too, especially question. when it comes to, to Job. Like, well, how did... Why is Satan going up to, hey, hey, good guys? <laughs> right. So there is a distinction that we have to make uh, between the presence of God and fellowship with God. That's very important. So obviously, God, when we say that God's presence, he can't dwell with iniquity, which is uh, passages in the Bible allude to that. We have to also remember, if we take that to mean that God cannot be present where there, are e where there is evil, then that makes real nonsense of the Bible as a whole uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, God is what we call omnipresent, means that his presence is technically everywhere all at once. And obviously that means that God is present where evil is being done. Uh, the other way to look at it is not only the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but the ministry of the Son. So Jesus showed up in, in a obviously physical body, but he was around evil and iniquity every single day, and he was able to abide, he was able to dwell in that kind of presence. There's coming a time where God's patience, and that's what that is, by the way, mm. God's willingness to be present with evil is a result of God's patience. He is, if because if God were to, to throw all evil out of his sight right now, he would throw all of humanity out of his sight right now. He has to, instead, his plan is, I will put up with, I will be patient with, the sins and the evil and the wickedness that is going on so that I can forgive, so that I can uh, reclaim what's been lost, and that is the, the holiness and the purity of mankind to the best of his ability, which means that we have to believe, we have to uh, trust that what Jesus did was sufficient, enter back into a relationship with God on that basis, and that's what allows us to enter into a relationship or fellowship with God. God does not have fellowship with evil, though. That's very important. He doesn't have a relationship with Satan, but Satan is allowed to be in his presence for the time being. 
Now, so not always going to be the case. If you want to understand more about that, you could read in Revelation where it says that Satan is cast down from heavenly places, and then he opens up the abyss. That's in Revelation chapter 9. Really interesting and kind of a, a crazy passage. But at any rate, right now Satan has a very interesting role within the created order. He has a very interesting role within the created order. Satan represents, I guess you could call it the justice of God, where he comes before heaven and he makes the accusations against man that are relevant. In other words, he is the accuser, which is, by the way, what the word devil means, right? The word devil means accuser. So he stands before the throne of God and he accuses the brethren. This is what it says in the Bible. And that's exactly what you see him doing in the book of Job. He's standing before the throne of God and he is accusing people of evil and wickedness, and he is calling God to account for his own justice. So in other words, Satan's argument back before the sacrifice of Jesus was, God, you are being unjust. You are allowing evil people to exist on the earth. All of humanity has fallen. All of humanity is a mess. You should wipe them out. You are being unjust. You're being unfair. That was Satan's role, the accusation. What God did, and you can read this in Colossians chapter 2, uh, is the the clearest place that I believe any of the biblical authors address this. What God did is he used the accusations of Satan to condemn Satan himself. So Satan stood before the throne, before the cross. He's like, God, you're being unjust. You're being unfair. Bulls and goats cannot take away the sins of man. You should just wipe them all out. If you were really just, if you were really righteous, if you were really holy, you would take care of the wickedness on this earth. You're not doing it. You're not being righteous. And that accusing got turned into mockery. So in Colossians 2, it talks about Jesus coming into heaven and leading a procession of shame against Satan and his devils. So all the accusations that were happening throughout human history where Satan's like, you're being unjust by not judging humanity, Jesus puts to shame those accusations by revealing God's plan, by showing, no, God actually wasn't unjust by overlooking those sins because he put them all on me and I have now paid the price. So God allowed Satan to be in heaven for that reason. He's still, uh, there's still a lot of insinuation that he's still up there and he's still making accusations. God, when are you going to end the world? You know, when are you going to make things right? Da, 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 just kind of being uh, a thorn in God's side. But God is eventually, he's going to put those to shame as well. So again, in the book of Revelation, that's what we see there. God is throwing him out of heaven. He is making everything right and he will cast all evil out of his sight. And that's why hell is created. Hell is a is a place that God created where people will be cast out of the presence of God permanently. Uh, that includes Satan, the demons, as well as all those who follow their example by rebelling against God and their humanity. So the, hell has a very important purpose. Satan has an important purpose. And beyond that, we also know that Satan doesn't just have access to the throne room of God, but Satan and his demons have access to the hearts of men. So one mm -hmm. of the roles of Satan is not just to accuse God so that God can vindicate his judgment through his righteousness, which he'll, he does through his son. But Satan also exists in a capacity to tempt man, to stoke the rebellion of man's heart to give us a viable alternative to God. In other words, it allows us to feed into our fleshly desires to rebel against God. Mm. That's his purpose and his role. Uh, God has to allow us to have a viable option. Uh, eventually, like I said, a great Christian book that we're definitely going to evaluate down the road on Thursday is the Screwtape Letters. Yeah. I love the Screwtape Letters, and that's what you see there. You see the communiques 
of demons as they're trying to tempt, as they call them, their patients. Right. And that's what's happening. The demons are tempting us, but they're not creating evil. They're fanning the flames of the wickedness that's already inside of man, and they're utilizing circumstances to pull people from God. But we see in Job, and we see repetitively in Colossians 2, is that God frustrates the plans of the demons by taking even their best laid plans and using them to mock them, mm. right? So Satan is like, I'm going to destroy Job's life, and therefore it's going to prove that God is not a worthy object of worship because Job is going to curse him. It's going to also take away the most righteous person on the earth. That's what God said, that no one was as righteous as Job. It's going to actually uh, create evil and iniquity inside the most righteous person on earth. It's going to frustrate the plans of God. This is going to be great. But what does Satan end up doing? He ends up immortalizing Job. Without Satan's temptations in that book, none of us would know who Job is. We all have read, like Christians and Jews for thousands of years have read the story of Job and pulled unbelievable amounts of hope and satisfaction from it because it's a book about suffering, all because Satan chose to attack him. So God actually used Satan's attack to glorify himself even more and to give honor and dignity to Job that he would have never gotten otherwise. So uh, one pastor put it this way. He says, when you're absolutely dominating the enemy— is when you're even using their own plans to kill them, right? Mm. So you're, you're you're not just creating strategies that that frustrate them. You're no. even using their strategies and supplies to frustrate them. Yeah, that's how. That's what a shutout this battle is between God and Satan. Yeah, uh, it's not just that you know Satan gets one up on God and then God gets one up on Satan and he's just going to end up winning in the end. It's even Satan's plans are being turned in on him, Yeah. right? So it's just a total shutout. It's a total victory. Yeah. But that's why God is doing what he's doing. Right. And Satan doesn't have, I mean, God knows our thoughts. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he has that kind of wisdom. Satan and the demons do not, correct? That's right. They, but they, I mean, they're a higher being, so probably just observing us, they, we're not probably hard to figure out. Well, <laughs> we're not really sure exactly how it works. There is indication that they they do have some idea of what our thoughts are. Because mm. obviously in temptation, they have to be communicating not with us verbally. So in other words, I don't usually talk to myself when I'm being tempted. Mm. I have an inner monologue, but it's not audible. Yeah. So how is Satan aware of what my desires are and how they're moving? Mm. Um, now, what we see with angels and demons is that they are... They're beings of spirit. Uh, The way I put it is that they're beings of pure consciousness, right? So we have consciousness, but it's bound in a body, right? And we exist in a, you know, the really fancy word is hylomorphic. Mm. We live in a hylomorphic state in which our body and our minds are inseparable. Mm. They they coexist together and they give being to us. Demons and angels are not like that. They don't have a body. They don't need a body but they are pure consciousness. They exist in a completely mental state, Mm. which is interesting. Uh, So it would stand to reason that they would have access to our consciousness in a direct form Mm. that human beings don't. Mm. So because I'm bound in a body, if you want to communicate a thought to me, you have to use your your mouth. You have to use your, your words and I have to listen with my ears. You use your body and I use my body to communicate. Yeah. But because demons and angels don't have bodies, it is plausible and heavily insinuated within the scriptures that they don't need that in order to understand what's going on, that they can just access someone's thoughts Mm. in some weird way. Right. Interesting. Cool. Thank you. Um, Thank you, Kathy. Swim Kathy, I think, yes, for that question. Um, Just an announcement. Something happened on our website. There's a, a 
Sean is on there. He's homesick, but he's on there talking with uh, Tor Beth mostly. But because there's so many comments on there, it's pushed it to the point I can't scroll up to the early questions. So if huh. you asked a question early through our uh, website, um, please state it again at the bottom because I literally can't go up. It's like <laughs> it's like cut me off. Um, but um, Sean's there, so I'm sure he's uh, giving you a great discussion there. But uh, I'm sorry, I can't see what the early questions were. But um, we had a question from Wayne come in. Um, why do people call Donald Trump the beast? Uh, because that's a, a theory that's getting more and more popular. So should we be concerned about it? So the beast, so I mean, the Antichrist, right? Yeah. It's the same thing. Is, is Donald Trump the, the Antichrist? I hope so, because so, that means that, <laughs> that it's almost here. Let's get yeah. things going. Yeah. Um, so the reason why people call Donald Trump the Antichrist is because historically throughout Christendom, uh, there's that word again. Oh, I love it. Uh, <laughs> Say it again. Historically through Christendom, there's always been a perspective that Jesus can return at any moment. And because of that, we understand that with the return of Jesus, it's going to be preceded with the advent of this person that we call the Antichrist. This ultimate world leader that's described for us in Revelation, he's also described in Daniel chapter uh, chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11, uh, this really interesting figure who's going to come on, on the scene and he's going to embody all of the rebellious heart of man, and he's going to lead a last world empire that's going to dominate the scene. So because of that, because Christians always believe that Jesus could return at any time, because that's what it says in the Bible, they always ascribe to the dominant empire on the earth that the political figure that's ruling that dominant empire is more than likely going to be the Antichrist. So in other words, if the Antichrist is going to come, he's not going to be a political figure in, in Guam, you know, <laughs> where your kids are going to go. He's yeah. not going to be a political, he's not going to be a, a state senator in Arizona. You know, he's he's going to be someone that has a large amount of sway. He's going to have very strong political power. And that means that he's going to be wielding it in arguably the most pro, uh, predominant and powerful empire of the day. America is that empire right now. We are the most powerful empire of the day. Back in the day, it would have been Rome, and then after Rome, I mean, it was Rome for, for years and years and years, then it was uh, parts of Europe, and then it went to England, and then, you know, part of people thought maybe it's France, and then Germany started to ramp things up, and then Russia started to ramp things up, and now it's gone back to maybe America, because we're basically the last superpower left standing. Mm. Uh, it, it kind of goes in circles like that. So if people are looking at it and saying, we believe that Jesus is coming soon, it would make sense that they would pick one of the most predominant political figures in American politics, right? Which would be Donald Trump. Some people believe it's Joe Biden. Other people believed it was uh, Barack Obama. Some people thought it was Ronald Reagan. But it's basically the most prominent political figure of the time of the most prominent empire is going to be the best candidate for the Antichrist. Mm. Now, the problem is, is it's okay to speculate that. It's okay to throw it out and be like, hmm, maybe it is Trump. And I've said that. I've been like, hey, yeah, maybe it is Trump. I think there are things that fit. I think there are things that don't fit. Mm. I think the number one thing for me that's telling me it doesn't fit is the fact that Trump just released a, a line of playing cards and I uh, like trading cards where he's dressed up like a superhero. I just can't imagine the Antichrist doing that. I mean, I mean maybe he, he will. I don't know. But like the fact, the fact that he's selling uh, pictures of himself dressed up like a superhero for $100. I'm just like, that doesn't really seem like the Antichrist. It seems more like a joke to me. Yeah. But hey, there are other more serious reasons to doubt Trump's position as the Antichrist. But regardless, I think it's okay to speculate. 
it's bad to be dogmatic. It's bad to right. say it's definitely Trump. It's absolutely going to be him. And be aware because everything now I'm like investigating everything that Trump is doing. Yeah. And if he, you know, number one, that means that I am too fixated on the person of the Antichrist and right. not enough on Jesus. Number two, I don't know if right now is the is going to be the end times, meaning I don't know if this is the last days that Jesus yeah. is going to come back in my lifetime. I believe it. I believe it's possible, but I'm not going to function in my life very well if I'm treating it like an absolute. Yeah. All right. So one of the reasons why a lot of Christians, uh, especially now, have pulled out of politics and world issues is because they're so convinced that Jesus is going to come back any day. And they're like, well, why invest in anything? Right. Why, why worry about the political climate? Why worry about my 401k or my family? Jesus is going to come back any moment. Right. Uh, that's bad theology. It's like, no, Jesus is going to come back at any moment. So look busy. Right. Yeah. Do the right things that you should be doing yeah. because you want him to come back with you in a state of readiness as yeah. opposed to you in a state of laziness. Right. But uh, that's that's an important distinction to make. Be careful about being dogmatic about your speculations and be careful about making it a political issue in the sense of demonizing your opponents. Right. So yeah. usually it goes across party lines where Republicans always think a Democrat is going to be the Antichrist and Democrats always think a Republican is going to be the Antichrist. So be careful of, of <laughs> saying well, if Donald Trump is the Antichrist, then anyone who supports him is a supporter of the Antichrist, and I'm going to demonize my opponents that way. Yeah. Be very careful about that as well. Yeah. Um, all parties have their excesses. All parties have their good points as well. Be careful to be uh, very clear about what those are and to not demonize your opponents by assuming that everything they believe and think is built upon lies and, and wickedness. Yeah. So I, I think if, as long as you avoid those excesses, I don't think it— causes much harm to speculate i think right. it's kind of fun sometimes actually yeah but don't get too invested in it and don't be too yeah weird about it because there isn't special instruct instruction that says you know when the antichrist comes then get busy doing x and such right, right. we i mean we know how we're supposed to live like you said every day yeah doesn't really change anything so it is interesting to speculate and have and there's a lot of indication from second thessalonians 2 that we're not going to know who the antichrist is until after we're raptured mm. So, uh, you know, if you believe in a premillennial rapture, your speculation's really dumb because it literally says in the Bible, you will not know yeah. <laughs> until after. He's not going to reveal that he's, he's prevented from revealing himself until right. you, after you're raptured. So gotcha. that's another important point. Yeah, that is. That is great. Thank you. Well, Wayne, thank you for that question. Very, again, common thought, common question. As you said, it's kind of um, even growing in momentum there. So I hope that helps you out. Uh, question from Torbeth. And we got, I took the clock off the screen. Yeah. Question from Torah Breath. Uh, the question is, were the Pharisees, uh, why were the Pharisees blind or were they blind to what happened? Hang on, let me try and pose this as a question. When the curtain was split, um, did they repair it? Were they blind to what had happened? Did they repair the curtain or did they just ignore that it was a miracle? Um, and did they believe that the disciples stole the body? So what do we know about the Pharisees? What do they think of all, all those happenings that they just explain it all away? And I never thought that myself, the curtain tearing yeah. from top to bottom, right? As if God himself tore it um, into the Holy of Holies. Now, you know, there's no Holy of Holies. Jesus has given us that access, that whole thought. Hmm. Did they think that was just a oops and stitched it up? Do we know? Uh, I mean, obviously, we know that they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So we have that from the book of Acts. We don't have any direct indication from the Bible whether or not they stitched it back up, but the insinuation would be they would have had to right? Uh, because they believed that that was access to the Holy of Holies, which yeah. is off limits to anyone except for the high priest on the day of Yom Kippur. Yeah. 
So nothing, and nothing happened to change that. So business right. as usual. Yeah. Yeah. So they would have. Uh, I think it's fair to insinuate that they absolutely repaired it, and they weren't convinced by the tearing of the curtain. Now, uh, I mean, think about this for a second. Not only were they, if you say it's a little hard to believe that they would just see that as happenstance, um, the Jews had witnessed Jesus do amazing miracles up until this point. Mm. They had seen him literally raise people from the dead. Like he raised Lazarus from the dead, and their response to it was, we got to kill this guy again because he's converting too many people to Jesus, right? So instead of being like, how could this guy have raised someone from the dead? There must be something to what he's saying. They're, they're, what their takeaway was is we got to kill Lazarus because he's converting too many people to Jesus as the Messiah. So these people were exposed to far greater miracles than simply the temple, uh, the, the veil being torn, and it did nothing. Um, Dennis Prager, who's an Orthodox Jew, he said something really cool uh, recently that I, I thought was really amazing and profound. He says, what the Bible teaches you about miracles is that miracles don't convince people of truth. And he's mm-hmm. absolutely correct. So when you go through the Bible and you see miracles being performed, they, they almost never have a converting aspect to them. And his reasoning, and I thought it was really cool, where he said, the glory of God and the miraculous nature of God's, of God's being is so obvious within his created order that if you blind yourself to it and you ignore it, you are not going to be convinced by a more spectacular miracle, right? Miracles, the, the purpose that they do tend to have is that people who are already willing to listen to God become more confirmed in that belief, right? They're, they're, in other words, they are not for the faithless. They are actually for the faithful. The people who already believe are confirmed in their faith. They realize, okay, this is not just my mind making it up. I'm confirmed. This is clearly from God, and then they move forward. Mm. But you really don't see instances in the Bible of people being converted because of miracles, uh, and that's why mm. Jesus says, "A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but none shall be given to it." Right. So they saw it. Did it do anything to them? No. Historically, we know that it didn't. Yeah. Uh, there, there were some Jews that were converted at Pentecost, but we have no indication of any Jews being converted because of the events of the cross. Mm right, of, of wow. actually seeing, and uh, that's not the only thing that happened, right? The, the, the sun was blacked out. There was an earthquake. <laughs> yeah. there, in Matthew 20, it actually says that the dead rose, that saints actually rose from the dead <laughs> out of the graves and spoke the gospel to, to their friends and family. Yeah. Those are insane things. It happens. It yeah. <laughs> but it just got written off. And, uh, you know, there, there are so many miraculous things that are written off by people every day. Yeah, uh, th- this is something that's just true about human nature. Yeah, yeah. Is there a verse uh, that God hides His miracles with the with the believers or something like that that I heard? And that seems to be my my experience anyway. That there's miracles that take place that are more personal. You know, things that are not you know necessarily miracles like the sun stop you know ceasing to to shine, but things that just the way that things came about was like. So God, you know, we kind of say that. Such a God thing. Well, you know, I always like to define what a miracle is. So uh, the tendency of modern day people is to to define a miracle as something that's just really, really unlikely, right? So if if something that has like a million to one odds happens out of nowhere, like someone wins the lottery, they're like, oh, it's a miracle. Or, you know, you're driving in the car and you flip it a billion times, and then you get out and you're fine. Oh, yeah. it was such a miracle. What a miracle is, is it's God directly intervening with his created order. Yeah. Uh, and it's a result of his providence, and it's a result of his power. Sometimes God's interaction with his created order is more obvious and less debatable 
like the resurrection, but God is always interacting with his creative order, right? That's the message we get from the Bible. He is always interacting with it. He is yeah. interacting it with it through the sense that he holds it together. He's interacting with it through his beauty, right? Beauty calls us to God and to the transcendent. He is interacting with it in our love and our relationships with one another. There are so many things in his creation, his creative order every day that communicate the reality of the transcendent and the love of God yeah. to man if we're only willing to listen. Right. And his providence is made clear through many different factors that happen within our life, yep. uh, including what we tend to attribute to coincidence. Uh, this just so happened to happen. Yep. Uh, you know, I just so happened to run into this person who was going through this really severe thing, or right. I just so happened to forget something at home, so I turned around and then I get to work and th there's a fire, or you know, I just yep. all these things that we attribute to happenstance do tend to be God moving things in a very direct and intentional way. We yep. have to, as Christians, believe in providence that yep. God is doing things to achieve His intent. Yeah. And not just accidentally. Yeah, very good. Uh, well, Torbeth, thank you for that that question on the Pharisees. Hope that that uh, helps you out. Certainly, sad to think that they were blind to those things, but God is sovereign over all of that. Uh, question from you're about five minutes or four minutes left on the show here. Question from Yari. Welcome, Yari. Thanks for joining us. Um, I guess along the lines we talked about prayer and mm -hmm. the place of that. He asked, "What are the benefits of worshiping God?" And what is the disadvantages when we don't worship him? You know, mm. now I, I mean, I know of people that don't really enjoy worship. In fact, even uh, Wayne Lewis, who went to be with the Lord recently, part of his story at, shared at his celebration of life was that he never used to like the musical part. Mm. He'd come into the service after the music was done. And he had a very um, uh, close friend who actually sung at the memorial who, who kind of opened his eyes to what worship was. And they mm. used to get together and he used to kind of, make him sing <laughs> and then he became a worshiper he, he he realized the place and he loved it it was just a beautiful story but anyway that's the question what are the advantages and disadvantages of worship <clears throat> no, such a good question i'm trying to sum up my thoughts in four minutes yeah um, so the word worship means worthship it came it comes from an old english word that literally that's how it's pronounced worthship and in the original language that is what it means it means to ascribe value or worthiness to an object so worship takes on many different forms. So I could worship something musically. I could worship something non-musically, just through praising it, saying that that's really awesome. I really like that. Uh, I can point people to it. I could uh, advertise for something. Mm. Man, you should go see that. Or that that book is really good. You should read it. That's all worship. Mm. That's all ascribing worth or value to something. Mm -hmm. In an ultimate religious sense, what that means is ascribing ultimate value to something. So I'm not just saying that God is valuable. I'm saying he's ultimately valuable. He is right. so valuable, in fact, that everything in the universe only has value because he created it, mm -hmm. right? So all the value, all the worth and worthiness of the universe is built upon God's worthiness. If I get rid of his worthiness, nothing matters. Mm -hmm. It's all completely useless and transient, and who cares? Yep. But if God is worthy, everything is hollowed because of that, right? This is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, verse 4. For we know that the creation is good. Why? Because God created it good, right? God made it good. He made it worthy. So if I put him first and I ultimately worship him, everything falls into place. Yeah. Now, why is it musical? Why do we tend to worship things musically? So worship is a spontaneous act that comes through recognizing and apprehending the goodness and the inherent beauty of something. Mm. So it's not done intellectually. You don't intellectually worship. The intellect needs to be a part of worship, but that's not where worship comes from. Mm. 
Worship is a spontaneous act of enjoyment. I eat a bowl of soup. That was good. Mm. I enjoy a movie. Man, that was awesome, right? I, I end up spending time with my wife. You're beautiful, right? It just comes out as I'm enjoying something. That's how it works. And so, of course, it's going to spontaneously come out in artistic ways yeah. that we just, we move. And it's not the left brain. It's not the logical brain that's communicating it. It's the right brain. It's the emotive side. It's right. the passionate side. It's the artistic side and the creative side. That's where it's coming out. And that's how it has to come out. Um, that's obviously why it's communicated in that way and why we do it. Yeah. Uh, that's our way of ascribing worth to God. So can you spend time just sitting around and intellectualizing how good God is? Absolutely. But it's not going to get you very far. Yeah. Uh, you need to experience God. Psalm 34, verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Yeah. You experience God, you understand him, and that's what brings up worship. Now, what I tell people is that emotions can be encouraged through the mm -hmm. intellect. If you only rely upon experience to allow you to enjoy something, it's very shallow. You utilize reason and rationale to enjoy something even more. It creates a bulwark for your enjoyment. Right. It makes it even more powerful. But the initial start, the initial starting point for praise is always enjoyment. And yeah. that happens through beauty. Yeah, very good. Great question, Yari. Might be cool to sometime get into uh, these Christian disciplines and like the benefits of all of them prayer and worship yeah. and studying the word and yeah. missions and all that kind of stuff that'd be kind of cool yeah. um, great question yari thank you for that well we come to the end of our show I wanted to mention real quick if you're looking for somewhere to fellowship for uh, this christmas weekend we have a christmas eve service at 6 p.m here at calvary christian fellowship christmas day just our one service at 9 30 they're uh, family style services uh, god bless you we'll see you next time on reason for hope you've been listening to a reason for hope Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.